This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 14. News. The news of Richard's forthcoming marriage was received with shocked relish everywhere but in his immediate family. The Tomlinsons maintained a discreet attitude, taking their cue from Miss Anne, whose only comment was, You are old enough to know what you are doing, Richard. I hope you are happy. But in Woodridge and throughout the countryside, tongues wagged aplenty. For a widower of 26 to marry again was to be expected. But for him to wait a bare six months and then select as his bride a stranger who had lived under his roof during his first wife's lifetime cast an interesting suspicion over the whole affair. Too many eager widows and hopeful spinsters had fixed their hopes on Richard for this action to pass unassailed. Speculations were rife concerning the precipitancy of the arrangements. It was prophesied that Abigail would turn over in her grave. Judith in her hot back bedroom at Miss Pruitt's, busily sewing on her wedding garments, shrewdly divined that the local reaction would be and prepared to offset it. She was well aware that she could not cop the prize matrimonial plum of a small rural community without making enemies. For herself, she cared not a fig, but she was determined to make the second Mrs. Tomlinson a more popular figure than the first Mrs. Tomlinson had been. If she married Richard in Terre Haute and went back to Timberley as his wife, she would be forever an outlander. But if she returned to Woodridge as plain Judith Amory and married him on his own ground, she would have the sympathy and goodwill of all who attended her wedding and it was her plan that everyone of importance should attend. So the first week in September she packed up, paid off Miss Prewitt, and departed from her select boarding house forever. Twenty-four hours later, she was installed in the Barclays front parlor in Woodridge, penning a chaste note to her betrothed, notifying him of her change of address. And here she waited, surrounded by Barclays all busily stitching on Judith's trousseaux, while she listened for Richard's step on the walk and the ring of the Barclays' doorbell. But when the Timberley Surrey stopped at the gate one afternoon, it was Anne Tomlinson and not her son who had called. After a momentary calm, Judith was pleased. This was as it should be. Whatever Anne Tomlinson's personal feelings might be regarding this marriage, and Judith had a lively suspicion of their nature, Richard's mother was prepared to do the correct thing. My son tells me that you plan to be married in Woodridge. Miss Anne went straight to the point as soon as greetings were disposed of. Judith had conveyed this information in her note. Actually, she had no such plan in mind. The wedding she visualized could never be encompassed in the Barclays' tiny dwelling. But she intended letting Richard or his mother make the suggestion that would accomplish her purpose. I dislike the idea of being married in a boarding house, said Judith wistfully. It was an effective touch. Miss Anne softened. 
I'm sure Richard would never have let you be married in a boarding house, even in Terre Haute. Now that you're in Woodridge, you must have a church wedding at our own church. But Judith favored a home wedding. It's so much more intimate, I think. Of course, I have no home. But Mrs. Barclay has kindly consented to let me be married from here. I hope it won't put her to too much trouble. The Barclays, mother and daughters, interrupted in concert. It was no trouble at all. Their only fear was that they could never be able to get all the guests inside their tiny cottage. You plan to have guests, Judith? asked Miss Anne dubiously. She had talked to her son, and he had agreed with her that the quieter the wedding could be made, the better. Neither of them had spoken the thought out loud, but it was in the mind of each that festivities of any kind were in bad taste, so soon after Abigail's death. But Judith had no scruples. I want everyone at my wedding whom I hope to have for a friend, and that means practically everyone Richard knows. It's hard enough for a second wife to win a place for herself without having hurt feelings on all sides to start with. Anne Tomlinson could have explained that in this community it was harder to live down scandal than to cope with hurt feelings. But she held her tongue. And when the younger woman said, You don't know how much it means to me to have Richard's friends like me. You see, I have none of my own. The prejudice which Miss Anne had felt since the night she discovered the schoolteacher's love for her son was forcibly put aside. Judith was not the daughter-in-law she would have chosen, but she was a young woman entering into her first marriage and entitled to the favors which are a bride's prerogative. If she wanted a home wedding, then a home wedding she would have, but it must not be at the Barclays. If you plan to invite all Richard's friends, you'd better be married at Timberley. It's the only house around here large enough to hold them. Judith dropped her eyes before Anne Tomlinson caught their sparkle of triumph. Do you suppose it would be proper? She demurred for the sake of appearances. I mean, being married from the home of the bridegroom. Quite as proper as being married six months after his first wife's death, said the gleam in Miss Anne's eyes. But she kindly answered. It was your home last winter. It will be your home from now on. Under the circumstances, I think you should return at once to Timberley and make all your arrangements from there. This was what Judith had been angling for from the start. Now she need not be separated from Richard during this tiresome interval of waiting. But before she could express her pleasure at the invitation, her future mother-in-law dashed her hopes. Fortunately, an old college chum of Richard's has been wanting him to come to Greencastle, and he can pay him a visit now as well as later. Judith's face was a study of chagrin. You mean Richard won't be at home? Oh, no. It would not do for the bride and groom to live under the same roof before their marriage, said Miss Anne calmly. To Judith, this attitude was sheer stupidity. Her first furious disappointment almost erupted in words. She had counted on this time with Richard to further bind him to her, for she was not yet sure of him. She had not seen him since that day in Mrs. Pirouette's garden, and their only intercourse had been a brief correspondence. She had no fear that he would try to jilt her, for he was a gentleman. But she was uneasily aware that she had taken him by surprise, 
and that he might have regretted his capitulation. She had hoped for a chance to rekindle him. Now all her wiles were useless. Silently she cursed the hide-bound conventionality of this rural community, which forbade him her lips before their marriage night. But she kept her disappointment to herself and decided to make the most of her opportunities. At least she would have nothing to distract her from her immediate objective, which was to stage a wedding at Timberley, which would be the talk of the county. Three days later she returned, laden with goods, bought on credit, and took personal charge of arrangements. The Tomlinson women, catching a certain fire from her enthusiasm, good-naturedly followed her leadership. Kate, Jane, Nancy Turner, and cousin Ludie Sims practically moved into the house to assist in the preparations. They sewed, cooked, cleaned, and garnished until the house bloomed like an autumn garden. A little bower of late fall flowers was erected in front of the drawn curtains of the alcove, and here the wedding ceremony was to be performed. It was not until the last moment that Judith had the inspiration about Thorn. She had planned from the first that Richard's little sons were to be ring-bearers. Kate and Cousin Ludy had cut up an old velveteen skirt of Miss Anne's and under Judith's direction had fashioned clever little page-boy suits for Ricky and Raji. She was using the double-ring ceremony to the secret confusion of the easy-going Methodist minister, and Thorne was making two tiny satin pillows for the rings to lie on. It was while watching Thorne bent silently over her work that the idea came to Judith. For the first time since her return, she found herself really looking at the child. Either Thorne had avoided her or Judith had been too busy to notice anyone in whom she was not interested. She had not bothered to apologize when she found she had disposed Thorne from the bird's-eye maple room, but she had invited her to share it until the wedding. Thorne, already installed in her old berth with the children, preferred to remain where she was. It came to Judith now that Thorne's feelings were hurt because the boys had a part in the wedding and she hadn't. To Judith, personally, nothing was less important than Thorne's feelings, but she forced herself to recall that Richard made no difference between this girl and his own children. She did not intend to snare her enterprise on the reef, which had wrecked Abigail. Not at the onset, anyway. Richard must be pleased with every detail of the wedding, and Thorne, moping in a corner, was sure to catch his eye. How would you like to be in the wedding, Thorne? She asked brightly and watched with interest the startled uplift of the curly dark head. Judith, I think that's the smartest notion you've had yet, said Cousin Ludie, who was putting the finishing touches to the bridal veil. If there's one thing that'd make Richard happy at his wedding, it'd be to have Thorn standing beside him. It was an unfortunate remark. Judith discounted it as coming from a person of no consequence and continued watching Thorn, who dropped her eyes to her work again. There's yards of that tool left over. Plenty to make you a dress. You can wear my satin sash and carry a basket of roses as flower girl. You're too young to be a maid of honor, but I really should have an attendant since Will is acting as Richard's best man. Would you like that, Thorn? Do you think Richard would like it? Asked Thorn. Annoyance flushed Judith's cheeks. Any other girl of 14 would have thrilled at the invitation, 
She had half a mind to retort that Nancy Turner was available if Thorne was not interested. Then she recalled her purpose in conciliating this strange child. As Cousin Ludy says, I'm sure Richard would be pleased to have all his children taking part in this wedding. Thus, having put Thorne in her place back in the nursery, Judith gave orders that the tulle dress be made up. The wedding was set for the first Friday in October. Relatives from as far away as Bainbridge were expected, and from Monday morning till Thursday night, the house buzzed with preparations for overnight guests. Judith came upon Miss Anne one morning emerging from the downstairs bedroom, her arms full of window curtains for the washtub. You're not cleaning that room, she asked blankly. Yes, indeed. It's the first good cleaning it's had since... Miss Anne stopped, just in time. We passed this room up on spring house cleaning, so it's due for a real turnout now. We're cleaning everything out of the closet, so... The closet? Why bother with closets at a time like this? The sharp tone brought a flush to the older woman's cheek, and Judith realized her voice had risen unnecessarily. I mean, you've done so much already, Miss Anne. I'm afraid you'll overdo. Guests who are only staying the night are not likely to go poking into closets. This room is not for overnight guests, explained Anne Tomlinson. This room is the bridal chamber. For a second, Judith could neither move nor speak. Then she shivered, as though a cold wind had passed over her. Why had she not foreseen such an eventuality? She had taken for granted that she and Richard would occupy the bird's-eye maple room. She had overlooked the fact that the downstairs bedroom was, and always had been, his room, built for him as a lad, with his own private entrance long before his marriage to Abigail. He would expect, naturally, to go on living in his own quarters, and he would expect Judith to live there with him, in the room in which she had watched a dying woman fight for breath. A sudden paroxysm gripped her throat. She felt as though she were choking. When she spoke, her voice was so queer that Anne Tomlinson noted with concern her strange pallor. Like so many brides, Judith was wearing herself out before her wedding. Miss Anne, I don't want to seem difficult, but I'd much prefer staying, for the present, in my old room upstairs. I believe Richard will understand. When I explained to him. Anne Tomlinson understood. She had hinted to her son that his second wife might find unpleasant associations in the room where his first wife died. But he had scoffed at the idea. Judith was too level-headed to mind a thing like that. Besides, the bird's-eye maple room had been given to Thorn, and as soon as the wedding was over, she was going to move back into it. He had considered the matter settled when he departed for Greencastle. He did not return until the day before the wedding. It was his mother, not Judith, who informed him of the changed arrangements. Now don't say anything you'll be sorry for, Richard, as he started to explode. It's a natural feeling for a new wife to have. Judith may be above the average in brains, but she's a woman like the rest of us. No woman wants to start her married life in the bed where her predecessor died. It was a double-barreled word for Miss Anne, but she brought it forth roundly, clinching her argument. Richard, somewhat grudgingly, gave in. It's only for one night, though, I warn you. As soon as the company's gone, Thorne's moving back into her own room. 
Judith did not see him until they met in the dining room on Thursday evening. The minister, Mr. Jameson, Lucius Goff, and John Barclay were already gathered there in view of the wedding rehearsal, which was to take place after supper. As Judith came in, she wondered anxiously how Richard would greet her before his family and friends. She hoped for something a trifle warmer than a handshake. But she was not prepared for the charming gallantry with which he lifted the hand she gave him to his lips. Where did you learn that pretty gesture? She smiled to hide her delight in him. It was Lucius's idea. He and Lucius had come out from town together. Lucius holds that ladies of the, uh, intellectual type prefer a kiss on the hand to a kiss on the lips. He looked down at her with a meaning twinkle. I did not underdeceive him. If there was impudent reminder in his smile, there was also promise. Her last uncertainty vanished. She was thrillingly happy. The rehearsal was the prolonged, nerve-wracking ordeal such occasions usually are. The children were boisterous. Young Will swore audibly at the confusion of the two rings, and John Barclay got lost in a medley of both wedding marches. The bewildered minister perspired freely and wished Lucius Goff had license to officiate, since he seemed the only person present, except the bride, who knew what was going on. Lucius, who had covered many fashionable weddings for his paper, was in his element. Under his guidance, the rehearsal was finally got through. But it was late hour when the women folk retired, leaving the downstairs rooms to the bridegroom and his friends, whose traditional privilege it was to make merry till all hours. Judith had hoped for a moment alone with Richard, but it was not to be. The house was full of men and others were arriving. To have remained among them would have offended rural propriety. So she made her good nights general and withdrew. Thorne also slipped away, but not before Richard spied her. He caught her at the foot of the stairs and swung her clear off the floor in a hearty hug, demanding to know where she had been hiding all evening. I've been away, young lady, or hadn't you noticed? And not so much as a welcome home from you, he commanded. Look up here. Give me a kiss. She lifted her face obediently and they kissed. The two arms went around his neck and he held her close. There was a moment of poignant awareness that this was the end of something precious, the beginning of some loss. Then she drew quickly away from him and said, It's you who hasn't noticed anything all evening. I was at supper and I was in the rehearsal, but you didn't see me. You were in a fog. And laughing at the blankness of his face, she ran swiftly up the stairs.
but it's Richard I'm thinking of. He's never had a chance to be a bachelor. We married him off so soon. Every young man needs a little time of freedom. His thoughts retreated in panic haste from that comparison. He put his ear to the door. Mingled now with the sobbing was an audible refrain, repeated over and over. Oh, I wish I was dead. I just wish I was dead. A wind was rising. The branches of the locust trees lashed against her window like frantic arms beseeching entrance. The tall house moaned and sighed. A creaking sound moved up the stairs, and for a moment, she knew a thrill of pure terror. 